Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone, and welcome to August. The following people have pledged their support on Patreon to support the podcast. And because of these kind people... I am able to put the podcast out on a consistent basis. So I want to thank David and Jennifer Von Ebers, Jeff Ulmer, Sylvan Groth, Liz Brunson, Yetta, Steve Van Sack, Rob Barnett, Randy Brown, Bella Pori, John Munson, Levi Petrie, Stephen Malio, Steve Rogers, Dale Hosek, Terry Smith, Anna Lynn, Chris Bloom, and Mary Thomas. Thanks, everyone, for the support. If you want to be part of the Patreon family and get unique, unedited episodes in video, please go to patreon.com, search for Set Lusting Bruce, and you can support for as little as $5 a month. Thank you, everyone. Now on to the show. I was thinking a lot about was melody and not so much contemporary music now, but I feel like Melody really had sway, really like from the 20s up through the 70s. And then I think melody stopped being so important around the 1980s and rhythm and beat became more important. And I'm a sucker for a great melody. And sometimes I think we call the song cheesy when the melody is just, it's not hiding. It's right there. The emotion just is on the sleeve kind of, and it's just you can just grab it. I and mean, when you think of, was it the association, like a song like Windy, who's peeking out from under the, songs like this, which people might go, oh my God, like this is like creaky, oh, cheesy, whatever. It, the melody is just joyful. It just feels so good. And there's so many examples like that. And I think when we say cheesy, what we mean is it's just really available to us emotionally. And it's almost embarrassing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though he will come up as I'm sure as he normally does. We are, we've only just begun, maybe, to have our discussion. I have a I fan. Caught that. I caught that. Thank you. I have a fan of a lot of fun music, and she specifically, Amy said, let's talk about cheesy music that really isn't cheesy. They just get a bad rap. So, Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jesse. It's really great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So, I, I we, we connected. There is some services out there that helps people who want to be guests and people who want to have people join them. And so, Amy and I discussed, and I'm looking forward to our 
discussion, but let's start out with who's Amy? Give us your elevator pitch. My elevator pitch isn't really centered on music, although music has always been part of my life. I'm an author. I write novels. I also teach writing. I've also been a speech writer and a journalist. So I guess you could say words are my thing. And but music really has been important to me my whole life. I sung since I was a kid. I know I was in choir in like fifth grade singing You'll Never Walk Alone from Oklahoma and was in, sang in choirs all the way up through college and well into adulthood. I do love all kinds of music, not every kind of music, but many kinds of music. And what kind of writing do you do, Amy? I have four novels out, and each one is a little bit of a different genre. I like to write stuff that's dark and a little bit weird. I've got a mystery thriller out. I've got a paranormal romance out. I've got a fantasy starring a, someone who's half mermaid and half human. And so I write some stuff that's crazy, but I think it's, I think it's fun and it holds people's interest, hopefully. That sounds great. And we'll have to get a little bit more into that. I always like to start at the beginning. So talk about where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to when you were younger? I did grow up in one place. My family moved around the East Coast of the U.S. a lot. Nothing exotic. It didn't get more exotic than New Jersey and Philadelphia and then the and the Boston area and Connecticut and things of that nature. But frankly, my family soundtrack never changed that much. My parents were really diehard fans of all the standard Broadway musicals from the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and what I will call the Frank Sinatra track. If you listen to Seriously Sinatra, you've listened to the soundtrack of certainly my parents' life. And frankly, I still really dig it. It's not the only thing that I'm into, but all that place has a real place in my heart. All that stuff has a place in my heart. So there's often, when I ask that question, there's two general, I'm generalizing, but two groups of people that enjoyed their parents' music and then, and never rebelled against it. And then the others that tolerated it, rebelled, and then most cases when they became an adult, embraced what their parents loved. So I take it you were, didn't get the rebellion phrase? I love that you make that distinction. I think you're absolutely right. I did not rebel. I can't explain why, except that I think as someone who was born in the 50s, maybe my generation didn't change as fast as people born after me did. And so what my parents love, I really learned to love and I never stopped loving it. Obviously, I also grew up and listened to lots of music that they never heard and never would hear. But yeah, no, I still love it. There probably isn't a day that I didn't love the Beatles or Frank Sinatra or lots of others. It's just, just in me. It's always going to be in me. So, Amy, I was born in 59. I graduated high school in 77. My parents were big country fans. And so I never went through a phase where I didn't like country music. I just wanted, once I got my little AM clock radio, so you could control music yourself. I found the rock and roll station. And then, of course, would want to listen to that. But in the car, mom and dad chose. So even to this day, I have a love of Johnny Cash or Mo Hagger, Hank Williams, Charlie Pride, whoever you want to talk about. I really still em embrace that. And yeah, I do find often that people will go, yeah, I just think... 
they did show turns or crooners. And then when they get to be 28, 30, hey, that Frank Sinatra guy, he might have a little something. <laughs> Jesse, it's funny because you reminded me that, first of all, we're only uh, like two years apart and we're basically of the same era. And you and I both know that when we were growing up, a lot of music was still also very regional. Growing up in the Northeast part of the U.S., I never, I didn't hear country music until I went to college and met friends from other parts of the country. I had a good friend from Texas and they introduced me to like Little Feet and Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys who were a big deal back then. I think that's when I first heard of Grateful Dead, which really are, were still Southern rock-ish. And I would fall asleep at night when I was in high school listening to I don't even know if it was AM radio, it was whatever pop radio was, right? Like in the very early, late 60s, early 70s. And so it was soft. They played tons of soft rock. And I fell in love with soft rock. And I still love that too. Yeah, I so grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana. So deep south, never enjoyed Cajun music till I became older and then understood Zydeco and the joy of still not Still can't sit, listen for it three hours in a row, but for a change of pace, I really enjoy it. But yeah, my family, all about Deep South, and also my grandfather, very religious, active in the Southern Baptist Church. And so we would go to a lot of gospel singings where the local family drives around and they would sing and you would buy their self-published either LP or cassette or eight track and lived that. The other thing I talk a lot about, and this does sound like grumpy old man, in our era, the AM station was very diverse. They played soul. They played rock and roll. They played rhythm and blues. Mm -hmm. They played some crossover country. And so one of the great things about modern music is if I want to listen to nothing but Pearl Jam, I have a station on Eastern Radio, I can listen to Pearl Jam. If I want to listen to 40s classics, I can listen to it. But back then, you got a little bit of everything, didn't you? I w and I wish I'd gotten maybe a little more of everything. I do remember listening to Wolfman Jack and things like that, which I guess a lot of people our age were listening to. But you mentioned gospel. I love gospel music, but I didn't really know it or rather hear it much until I was probably fairly well into adulthood because I think that look growing up a white middle-class kid in white middle-class neighborhoods I was going to hear the stuff that I was surrounded by and I you're talking about all that great diversity on AM radio and I'm not remembering taking advantage of that which is of course wonderful that it was there but I think I probably had really mainstream tastes as a kid that of course grew more sophisticated as I got older I studied classical piano so classical was in my repertoire too hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Yeah, I. one of the things that you go through the stage where, you know, we want to be cool Barry Manilow wasn't cool, but he was all over the <laughs> no. radio in seventies, and I adore Barry Manilow. Right? I had tons of Barry Manilow eight tracks, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say because Mar- Barry Manilow brings up strong feelings. I think, if I'm being really honest, I think yeah. when I was young and he was in his his full fl- flowering, his prime, I think I probably really liked some of his songs. I will say that. He has not, his music has not aged well for me. And he. I'm definitely not his biggest fan in this day and age. As opposed to a group like The Monkees, which was the first concert I ever went to. In, I was in like fourth grade and I still love The Monkees. I was lucky enough, before the pandemic, I had bought a ticket. And it was Mickey Dolenz and Mike mm-hmm. Nesmith touring. Mm-hmm. Then the pandemic delayed it. They finally came. I went and saw them. Michael Nesmith was not doing well. He mm-hmm. was sitting on a, like a bar stool and mm-hmm. he wasn't performing, walked out with a cane. Mickey Dolenz was filled with energy and there, and they played a great show. It was really nice. And just a few months later is when Michael Nesmith passed. So yeah. I felt really lucky. Yes, I remember loving the Monkees TV show and loving the songs. Yeah. And we I made a joke about We've Only Just Begun, but you talked about you love the Carpenters. And so yeah. did I. Yeah, and I'm not going to apologize for that. Why should we? First of all, we all can love what we love, right? We don't have to apologize for it. But people want to talk about it being like the most square white bread music ever. And the truth is that those melodies and harmonies 
were, they had incredible hooks. And Richard Carpenter is an extraordinary arranger. And I know he gets the credit from some people that he deserves, but I think the average maybe pop music listener doesn't realize how much went into making those songs and arranging those tunes, let alone writing them. And I believe Karen Carpenter had perfect pitch. And for her to just start singing when she wanted to be a drummer and she turns out to have this extraordinary alto that with endless variations they were incredible and they recorded a lot of great music and a lot of those songs still really hold up now maybe not everything but a lot really do as melodies yeah i i could probably throw in a carpenter's greatest hits or throw to carpenters on spotify and remember tons of these songs wrote and such beautiful harmony and amazing voice. You're right. Karen Carpenter was just super wonderful. And the idea, I we there are no guilty pleasures. There's just pleasures, right? And there's music that doesn't do. I do, Mike, you were talking about, Bear, you were mentioning that Barry has not aged with you. I love the fact that, and I, Mark Evanier is a writer that has written tons of comic books. He's working on a Jack Kirby biography. He was involved with the executive producer and writer of Garfield, the cartoon series. So just a wonderful writer. And he talked about he went to Vegas, was dating someone at the time. And she said, hey, I've got tickets for a show, but you have to promise you'll go. If I tell you, it's Barry Manilow, right? right? Yes. And so Mark said, no, I don't have a problem. And he said that he went, he said it was a great show and he was talking to people beforehand and they were talking about how they fell in love to Barry's music and that Mm -hmm. he celebrated him. And he said, I've never been able to write any lick of music, but if, if someone told me that their, my music helped them fall in love and stay in love that would be better than any grammy i'd ever own and the other statement he said is he was in a room full of musicians and they were talking about certain pop acts and it's just Mm -hmm. easy that's just so easy that there's no thing to that and he said i really admire you because obviously if that easy you could do it And you could make millions of dollars, but you choose not to. So I really admire your fortitude. So you're reminding me of two things. Let's see if I can remember them both. First of all, you mentioned Las Vegas. And first of all, look, if I were in Las Vegas and someone said, I've got tickets to Barry Manilow, yes, I would go. I would not resist that. I am remembering that when I was on a business trip in the early 80s, I saw Liberace in concert in Las Vegas at the at toward the end of his his really productive musical life. But it was the it was his show and it was just phenomenally entertaining and so much fun and watching him play the piano and all the crazy cars and all the stuff in the costumes. What a hoot. And there's somebody that nobody really remembers anymore, but it was really fun in the moment. It was great. Not that we're going to go put Liberace records on, but it was cool. (laughs) I love that story. And sometimes you do see, I'm, I think it's a shame that now I am sounding a grumpy old man. John Denver is not in the Country Music Hall of Fame, nor in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm surprised. He is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Oh, I see. But not, and I think because he was too pop for the people in country. 
and he was too country for the people in the mm -hmm. rock and roll, even though they just in did Willie Nelson, which I'm happy about. And just once again, and let's, I thought would lead to your discussion about corny music is sometimes an artist gets labeled as cheesy, uncool, square, too pop. You mm -hmm. forget the fact that this is a darn good song. Mm -hmm. I did a list of cheesiest songs because I was Ooh, looking at that. Right? I want to know what's I want to yeah. know what's on your list. I made a list of different songs, not all cheesy, but I want to hear yeah. your list for sure. So I didn't write all of them, but I did. But I yeah. what I loved is Take On Me by Aha was the number one song. And which made me smile because just two weeks ago. I had a guest who's that's their favorite band. And she mm -hmm. talked about that she's got all their other albums. She is she never thought she was going to be able to see them because they're only big in their home country. And often one hit wonders get put into that box. Let's talk about it. And when you think one, it'll remind me of one and we can discuss it. But yes, I would love to hear a couple of the songs you mentioned. Oh, gosh. So I my list, maybe I moved away from cheesy to what I was thinking a lot about was melody and not so much contemporary music now, but I feel like melody really had sway really like from the 20s up through the 70s. And then I think melody stopped being so important around the 1980s and rhythm and beat became more important. And I'm a sucker for a great melody. And sometimes I think we call the song cheesy when the melody is just it's not hiding it's right there the emotion just is on the sleeve kind of and it's just you can just grab it and when you think of was it the association like a song like windy yeah who's peeking out from under the songs like this which people might go oh my god like this is like creaky old cheesy whatever it, the melody is just joyful it just feels so good and there's so many examples like that. And I think when we say cheesy, what we mean is it's just really available to us emotionally. And it's almost embarrassing. You just feel good right away when you hear it. And as opposed to something you have, a song you have to work for it. And so to me, that's partly what cheesy music is. It's easy. It's available. The emotional impact is right there. And you just can grab it and enjoy it and let it wash over you. One of the songs I always think of is Katrina and the Waves Walking on Sunshine. I, when I hear that song, mm -hmm. I just immediately, my foot starts tapping and I yep. smile because it is just a, it's just a, a little yep. shot of energy. Yep. Into, well, yeah. Take a chance on me, which is like that yes. same thing. You cannot, right. not, I'm going to see Queen live in the fall and I'm so excited because talk about songs that sort of just blow the doors off of kind of everything. Not that they're, I'm not calling Queen, I'm not going to say that. Queen's cheesy, but there's also a, such incredible melodic drive a, among, apart from the harmonies and beats. And sort of, this sort of brought the whole package. It's going to be incredible. There's that documentary about Adam Lambert taking over and doing mm -hmm. that, which I think is really amazing. Yep. Go ahead, tell some more. But I also want to talk about, as one of the things I thought was interesting, and just to give a little con, a little background to you. About a month ago, maybe a little bit longer, I reached out to former guests that had been on my podcast that were all published authors. Some fiction, some nonfiction, had a couple that were have done tons of fantasy, science fiction, comic books. Mm -hmm. I had others that did thrillers. I just had this. And I 
I said, okay, each of us came with our five best written Bruce Springsteen songs. Not our favorite songs, not our songs we think are his best, but as a writer, what is the best written song? And we ended up having about a two and a half, three hour discussion. We, uh, I guess, close to two hours and we broke it down. And it was so interesting to hear because, duh, songs are poetry and Mm. poetry can be stories. And Mm. there is, I am part of the Pantheon podcast network. And one of my, one of our sister podcasts is the Story Song Podcast. And it's three friends take story songs and basically break them apart and have a lot of fun with it. They did Bread, My Diary by Bread two weeks ago, and they just did Hotel California. And and I will tell you, when they go to the 70s, I feel like they're in my jam. They're right. <laughs> I have so, taken such deep dives into the Hotel California lyrics and I've puzzled over it and I've it's painted whole movies in my head and I never see it the same way twice when I hear the song because those lyrics, you just can dive into the lyrics of that song and get very lost. It's true. And this is true for some of them. Now, of course, with many songs, I will confess that I don't understand the lyrics. I don't know what they're saying because the words and even Bruce with like the deuce coupe phrase, like no one ever knew what he was saying. What's that phrase? What is that? And there are a lot. But I used to be a huge bread fan. Like when I was, especially when I was a a teenager, his voice was just, I thought it was really sexy and I thought it was pretty cool. One of the interesting stories was because the premise of the podcast is they break through each line by line and they have Mm -hmm. fun with it right? Mm -hmm. Really try to make it literal and explain. And I find a dowry underneath a tree. Why why is a diary underneath a tree? What are you an arboretum? Is this like a new schedule? But they said, and then the second half is they tell the story behind the song. They actually tell the story about the group. And they said that David Gates and them, they specifically got together to do these songs. And after a certain amount of period, they decided, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore. And they all went on to their own things. That's but funny. yeah, for they started mentioning all the bread songs. You're like, well, yeah, I like that song. I like that song. That was a great song. <laughs> Absolutely. So what do you think? Let's talk about, you mentioned that at times, storytelling, emotion, songs, you had some thoughts on that. Tell me what you're thinking, Amy. Yes, it's preparing to come on with you, Jesse, because I, I always give this I always give these things a lot of thought. I came up with my own little personal theory about kind of what's happened to popular music like in the last hundred years, but this will only take me like 30 seconds just to say it's not like launch into a so here's what I think. At the turn of the 20th century, when there were things like operetta was a really popular form, the music was the thing. It was all about the music. You can't understand the lyrics in an operatic because they're singing in an operatic voice. And you have no idea what words they're forming. It didn't really matter. It was all about the music and that kind of thing. Then when you move into like the 20s and the 30s and you get people like the Gershwins and Cole Porter and Jerome Kern, suddenly the lyrics are poetry, like what you were saying. Those lyrics are poetry. Some of it's incredibly clever. Some of it's incredibly lyrical. The interior rhymes are amazing. And so then suddenly the words are as important as the music. And I think that lasted for a long time. And then with the rise of what we think of as classic Broadway, and even all the way up through like the soft rock of the early 70s, I think the lyrics 
for a long time really mattered. Joni Mitchell, my gosh, you want to talk about lyrics that matter? I had friends in college who would lie on their beds for hours just listening to Joni Mitchell and trying to figure out what the hell she was saying and what it meant and that they were she was speaking to them and it was very personal. And so it really meant a lot. And I think what's now, we're just in a different era where it's not so much about melody and it's not even so much about words much of the time. It's about the drive of the song. It's about the propulsion of the song. It's about the rhythm and the beat. And that seems to be where it is. And I'm about, I'm all about melody. I think because as a, as a former singer, I love melody. So I'm always going to go for that. That's my little, that's my little theory of where music has been. What, what do, you, th- do you think? I think that's really, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also, I go back to, and things become cliches because there's truth. Mm-hmm. And that clip of American Bandstand where mm-hmm. they are doing the ratings and they'll say, oh, I'm going to give this an X because it's got a good beat and you could dance to it. So I do think there is that that drive. I've told the story before. So listeners, skip ahead a minute if you don't want to hear this again, but my lovely bride, Linda, was, I don't understand a word Bruce Springsteen is saying. He just mumbles and Mm -hmm. don't get it. And I told her when we were going to go to her concert, the second show, I said, don't try to hear the lyrics. Think of his voice as just another instrument. The same way. Remember in elementary school, we listened to Peter and the Wolf there is this and there was the story just by that and the instruments just think of his voice as another instrument and listen to the emotion that Mm -hmm. the music gives you and that really worked for her and then later she came back and then would do research and pull the lyrics and would read them and get to know so i guess i think do agree with you and we go through phases we go through phases where we want something that's mindless, that's fun, we can dance to. But great artists, be they country, classical, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, hip hop, great artists want to tell stories. They want mm-hmm. to tell stories with the melody. They want to tell the stories with the lyrics, and they want to push themselves. And I'll, I don't really have a question, but I want to hear your thoughts. I remember once Dave Marsh, who is a Bruce Springsteen biographer and a rock critic, and he said, there's a reason why Bruce chose to put Born in the USA out with that rock anthem versus he originally recorded with more as a blues acoustic version that he was trying to send a message by having it on that kind of music and melody the dichotomy of this message. And I think, right, that's what we do. That's what musicians do at times, don't they? Yes. And while you were talking about the artist just finding the way to tell the story and tell the story with the music, the song of the artist who came to mind for me just popped up was Glenn Campbell and Wichita Lineman. And what a perfect marriage of voice, a, a musical style, and a lyrical story. And he's talking about these hardworking guys. And it's such a great story. It's such a great song. And he told it. So he sang it so beautifully. And I think Gordon Lightfoot did a lot of that as well. He, my gosh, he was such a storyteller with his music. 
Kenny Rogers too, but I think of Gordon Lightfoot because I've listened really hard to some of his songs and tried to think of a lot. Again, he paints a picture. So I think you're right. And I think it's really powerful when that all comes together. Yeah. And the idea that I have something to say, I want to share. And I was reading a biography of Papa John Phillips and the Mamas and the Papas. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that struck me is John Phillips wanted to be commercially successful. He Mm -hmm. wanted to make music that would be played on the radio and that would make him money. And I'm not being a snob, but I go, but I, some of my idols, be it Brian Wilson or Bruce Springsteen or my current obsession, Jason Isbell or others. Yes, they certainly want the success, but they also feel like they have something to say, right? There is some, there is a story they want to tell. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the ones that I think the classics are going to be that tell that story that either through the lyrics or the music and it makes us feel. And I think that's one of the reasons why we love music so much is it makes us feel. I so agree. And with all of that, and when I was making my list of songs that have really moved me that are so different from each other and from different eras and such different writers, but they all follow the rule you're talking about. I don't love all of Elton John's music, but the ones that are good are just amazing. And I think Sorry is the Hardest Word is one of the best songs he wrote. So sad, so sad. That's an amazing song. It's in a minor key. It's got just an incredibly powerful hook. You just cannot stop listening to it. And for me, that was not even so much. The lyrics, I think, drive the melodic style, but it just brings you in, right? So that to me is an example. And Harry Nilsson's One is the Loneliest Number. If that song comes on somewhere, I'll just stop what I'm doing because I have to hear that song. It's just like these powerful hooks, that such a, an undeniable kind of melody that just, it's just so there. And one of my absolute favorites, which I remember hearing this, I guess as a teenager, and I just thought, oh, um, is Me and Mrs. Jones by Kenny Gamble and Leon sure. Huff and Carrie Gilbert. Oh my God, what a song. This is such a great song. And there's, those are each so different. And yet they all share that, the joy of just giving you such strong, satisfying melody and lines. It's great. It really is. How much does, how much music, how much does the music affect your writing? So I've heard tell of all the writers who listen to music while they're writing or doing some aspect of their creative work. I guess my brain's wired differently because when music is on, I can, my whole brain can only listen to the music unless I'm doing something truly mindless. I cannot write with music on. It's like sucking my brain away. I can't, I think it's cool people who can do that. And I think it's cool if it can somehow influence you or help your creative juices flow. I can't do it. If music is on, that is what I'm listening to. So I when I'm writing, I need like total silence, which do, first doesn't work for other people. They need like a white noise or something. It's like, nope, just nothing. Yeah, I'm also impressed by people who do that tends to, it de- depends on my mood on if I, often I will have music in the background if I'm working on a project or something where I'll do that. So I want to switch gears just for a moment. 
you talked about your other careers. Had, do you know you did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Did you grow up being a big reader? Yes, I was a nonstop reader as a kid. I loved books. I loved reading. Always did. I think my mom made sure that we went to the library all the time, checked out books. We had lots of books in the house. My mom loved to read and she really set the example. Yes, I grew up reading, grew up loving to read. And I think I, I think every writer needs to be a reader. I do think it's a prerequisite. But you asked, knowing that I was a writer, there are many people who will tell you, oh, yes, I always knew I was a writer. I, I will tell you this. I wrote for a living for decades in different forms. I was a journalist. I was a speechwriter. I was, I did, I did public radio. So I've done a lot of different kinds of writing. I've done communications writing. I never, ever dared to call myself a writer because it felt like something I hadn't earned. And yet all I ever did was write. That's how I made my living. And, and for the last several years, certainly my, my chief endeavor is writing fiction and just, and some nonfiction, but I've only recently gotten up the courage later in life to say, yeah, I, I guess I am a writer. I guess I am. I don't know. I, what else are you going to call me? Under, and, oh, and, and, an English major? Yes. <laughs> okay. Un, under occupation, you've, okay. Yes, I guess I can put writer. writer yeah. 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 When you mentioned a speechwriter, what kind of speeches? Who'd you work for? I was a speechwriter in the federal government for some cabinet level officials in a couple of different administrations and some other folks who led like federal agencies. And while speechwriting is a fascinating thing because you are, in charge of putting words in someone's mouth, but the words that you can put in their mouth are highly prescribed. You, The message is really determined ahead of time. So it's both creative and it's creative in one sense. And then you're shoehorning sort of someone else's message and making sure that the words are getting their ideas across, not yours. So it's the opposite of, I've also been written plays. So it's in a play, it's I'm deciding what the characters say. So it's all coming from my head. And when you're writing a speech, the words are coming from my head, but they have to serve somebody else's purpose. It's an interesting difference. Yeah, it isn't as if when you're writing characters, you are each character and you're writing in that character's voice. This is specifically if I'm I want to make an announcement and you're okay. You've got to figure out what my voice is and to make it sound like me or it's not going to be effective. And it isn't even a lot of speech writing isn't sometimes it's about sounding like the person and how they speak, especially if they're a well-known public figure. But it's often more about making sure that the message is on target and that it's coming from their mouth. So okay. you may not always be mimicking their cadence and maybe you're not using all of their favorite words and phrases, but you're making sure that it seems like it's all their idea. Yeah and, and, yeah. and that's what I meant. Not necessarily making sure there's a lot of pauses or something. It's this is the way this person would say that mm -hmm. there is a line. As I said, I'm recently just become obsessed with Jason Isbell. I saw him live for the first time and there is a song he wrote and he uses the F word in it. He mm -hmm. said, because that's how that character would have said that. And I love that the great Lawrence Block's birthday is coming up as we're recording this the next couple of days. And I was at a a reading he was doing and a, a signing and he was doing Q and A's. And I asked him a question about what a character was doing. And my theory was the character was doing X and 
he said, I think so too. And I loved that answer because it told me that in a lot of ways, the character had their own voice and their own arc that he was, yes, he was writing it, but in a lot of ways he had to listen to what the character said. Yes. I think that's a wonderful answer from an author. Yeah. That's great. All right. So when did you decide to start fiction? I made my first attempt somewhere around 2007, 2008, because I knew that I needed an outlet outside of work at the time. And I said, look, what are you waiting for? Just try it. So I wrote a a young adult novel that I, at the time, I just self-published it. And I think the main thing was to prove to myself that I could actually write a coherent book with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and like really get it done. And I was commuting by train at the time a lot between Baltimore, where I live in Washington, D.C., about an hour apart. And I remember I did a lot of my writing on the train, which it's deeply satisfying. You just get that rhythm of the tracks, the laptop. And if you're not going to sleep, you may as well write. So that was the start. And then I did a lot of playwriting for a couple of years. And I came back to novel writing about, I don't know, I want to say about maybe six years ago or so. And I guess I pumped out another three or four, how many books? I don't know, three, four, five. I've lost track. Some, some. (laughs) Yeah. So what did talk about it's, it sounds like you, you really enjoy doing different kind of storytelling. Is that, I think, Yes, my my motto as an author is that I write stories that let people feel while asking them to think. And under that motto, I write across genres. For me, it's what the story requires. For a story about a, a weary journalist who has to figure out why teenagers are disappearing from a small town, that's a mystery thriller. For a story about someone who is half human and half mermaid and needs to hide her identity from the world because she's being hunted, that's a fantasy. Right. And for a story about a romance, but a sort of a magical romance where the heroine is able to identify, locate, and obtain archaeological artifacts and treasures from anywhere in the world and commune with the artifacts and with the owners of the artifacts through any time period in history, that's a paranormal romance. So I love, I always say, you. I just won't be pigeonholed. I love just writing across genres and seeing where the story needs to go and making sure that I respect that type of novel while also hopefully giving the reader some surprises along the way. Do you feel that influences your choice of musical artists? That you like people that are diversity diverse and they don't go in the same kind of vein? Maybe now that you ask it, I'm not, I won't say that I'm the most diverse in my tastes of anybody. That is not true. But I love jazz. I love classic rock. I love classical music. I love opera. I love pop. I can listen to the bridge on Sirius for hours and be totally happy. I don't have to run screaming from the room, but then I can listen to Metropolitan Opera on a Saturday afternoon and love that as well. So I think it's about mood. It's about appreciating the different forms. And frankly, it's just gravitating to what floats your boat. What's next, Amy? What do you want to do? What haven't you done that you want to do? What's the story that you're working on? I never tell what I'm working on, but no, Makes sense. Having, I, I, having something hit a bestseller list in my lifetime would be awesome. But the truth is that the vast majority of, of authors, plenty of people write good books that don't make bestseller lists. So I'm really 
half joking when I say that, although if you scratch almost any author, they'll secretly confess that they sure. feel like that. <laughs> yeah. Nothing would make me happier than to see iTunes list me in a top 10 podcast level. I wish, I wish that for you, Jesse. I really Thank do. You. We all want that for each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is there something, though, that you haven't gotten to explore that you want to? For me, I'm very focused now on continuing to take creative risks when I write fiction, to continue to push myself to write better and write deeper and connect with readers. I'm also teaching a lot of fiction classes, and I love watching that world grow somewhat in terms of who I reach and what kind of classes I teach. And I'm what's called a book coach, which is I help other authors on their journey as well by giving them support structure and accountability and some tools that they can work with. So this is the pool that I swim in, I guess you could say. And for me right now, it's just more of all the above. Do you, how did you get into the book coaching? When I stumbled across a wonderful program called Author Accelerator, that certifies people as book coaches in nonfiction, fiction, and memoir. Once when I saw that, I realized this is something that I need to pursue. And so I'm a certified book coach. I've been through quite a rigorous training and I'm connected to a, an incredible community of thoughtful writers, editors, and book coaches. And we have a particular habit of mine, which really is that my goal is to help another author figure out how to tell their story. I'm not a ghostwriter. I'm not an editor. I work with the whole writer. So I give them the support that the encouragement they think they need. I help them with parameters and boundaries around the project, finding the right structure, finding the right voice, but really is a coach in the sense of helping that author find their own path forward. So I have a wonderful friend named Tom who early in our friendship, he started sending out story pages he does comic books does usually superhero romantics comics and 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 i found something wrong and i emailed him back i said hey do you did you mean to do this and he sent back no i hadn't thank you a lot and he and i got talking and he said one of the hardest things to do is to find someone who will put aside their friendship and go, this didn't work for me, Tom. And because I think there's two kinds of times when you go, hey, Amy, tell me what you think of this. And what I'm really saying is, Amy, tell me how wonderful this is, please. I need mm -hmm. the thing. And then there's others. Hey, Amy, tell me what you do this, because you know what? I want to make the best thing that I can make. Mm -hmm. And without that, and one of my best friends, I love him to death. And this happened years ago and it continues to this day. I was ranting in the car about how the injustice of something that was happening at work and that things were so horrible. And, utter and so I paused and Sam goes, supportive, logical. So what do you mean? Do you want me to be supportive or do you want me to be logical? I want you to be a supportive, of course. Absolutely. You are getting screwed. This They are the dumbest people ever. No, I totally, I just can't understand how they even think about this. Okay. Logical. Jesse, if you think about their point of view, and we went in there and I went, oh, yeah, that's right. So I do that often to someone. I would go, supportive or logical 
I love I love that. And I love that your friend was able to do that spontaneously because I recently read something just like that strategy, which is some something like along that you're saying, where you're saying, Do you want to hug? Do you just want me to listen or do you want me to problem solve? Like where yes. what do you where do you really need me? And how few of us take the time to ask what that person thinks they really want and need, as opposed to assuming that we know. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And it is, and I will bring it back to storytelling, right? I don't want to think that Puff the Magic Dragon is a, a song about drugs. Right. I want it to be a song about magic and losing your childhood and losing right. all the things that we do lose as we grow up. And uh, so you can keep your opinion of the song. And I think, and we've talked a lot, of, I've had other people say that, go, I know what the song means to me. And that's enough for me. I don't have to know what the songwriter was trying to portray because I got the message that I needed out of the song. So true. The And the other thing that brings up for me too, Jesse, is how we can each listen to the same song and it can make us feel different. Like we can feel different. It can make us feel differently. First of all, one of us might, one of us might not feel anything. And the other might be like moved so that we want to play it again. But I love how a song can affect people differently. We just take from it what we need or what we want or are the sum of our all of our experiences, what we bring to that song. And then we take from it something from it, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. If someone wants to hear more about you, your work. What's the best way? Just go to my website, which is amywrites.live. It's A-M-Y-W-R-I-T-E-S dot live. It is a dot live, not a dot com. And basically, everything's pretty much there, including probably a tab over to my coaching website as well, if anyone is interested in that. But you can see how to get all my books and other stuff that I do. And there's no music on the site, unfortunately, <laughs> but everything else is there. All right. So, Amy, if I want to explore your worlds, which book do you recommend first? I think you should definitely start with it's called The Potrero Complex, and it's the mystery th thriller about missing teens in a small town. OK, I will go and bookmark it and make sure that happens. Fantastic. So, Amy, what should I have asked you that I haven't? Oh, my goodness. First of all, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I know that we could talk about um, so much music. Oh, I know. One of your questions was about my concert-going experience. Yeah. And that forced me to make a little list because I, I haven't been to very many, like in, I've got, I've been to symphony concerts, but I mean like popular, yeah. I haven't done much of that. And then I realized what the trajectory looked like. So if you go forward in time, I've seen Queen in October, and if you go back to when I was about 10 or 11, I saw the Monkees. So that was my first concert was the monkeys. Yeah. And then in between is like in college, I someone took me to my a Grateful Dead concert. I was not a deadhead. And there was so much weed, so much smoke in the pot smoke in the air. And I didn't I didn't smoke weed at the time. I chose not to do that. That I believe I slept through the entire concert. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I just completely passed out because I have I don't remember anything. And then I saw Paul McCartney last year. Oh, nice. Live. I live right near the Camden Yards baseball stadium, which people probably seen on TV. It's I can see it out my window. We were able to walk to it. It was the man was turning 80. He's got more stamina than I've had in my whole life. It was unbelievable. It's just an unbelievable concert. Yeah. And I've things I've seen pentatonics. So here and there, but not that much. I was never like a big concert goer. <laughs> 
That's the question. That's the other question. Okay, so Springsteen's coming to Camden Yards in October. Right. Yes, I'll be a queen. Sorry. Okay. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. Very nice. This has been great. I agree. I feel like we've we got to do this again. I think we need to come up with some of our maybe our own some different songs we're going to talk about and share. I think that'd be a fun conversation. I would love to. I would love yeah. to. I think that's a cool idea. Yeah, I do too. Before I let you go, though, I got to ask you the Mary question. If you are a fan of Amy's work and you're checking out this podcast, thank you. She has made you all very proud. Jay Armstrong was a, he, at the time, he is now retired. He was a high school English teacher. And his honors English class every year, they would take Bruce Springsteen's song, Thunder Road, break apart the lyrics, compare it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken, talk about the imagery Bruce produced, and then would ask at the end of the two days, does Mary get in the car? So, Amy, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? I'm so glad I did my homework, Jesse. Good. <laughs> I have a couple of different answers because here's you're talking to a novelist who writes in different genres. Okay? So I'm going to give you different answers. Awesome. Part of me says, I sure as hell hope not. Because for me, the song is all about the male gaze. And I think Mary needs to go off and live her own life. I also am reading things into it that probably Bruce Springsteen didn't intend that seems to me like his intention is to basically essentially go rape her. And maybe no one else has come up with that conclusion, but the door is open, but the ride ain't free. Let's see. What was the other line? Climbing back. Heaven's waiting down on the tracks. I get all this like sinister vibes. Now, this is our conversation about this is what this is how it affects me. I'm sure there are millions of people who don't read this into it at all. So I'm not saying that's the truth of the song. I'm just saying. Wow, these are things that land for me. So I don't want Mary to get in that car. And I also think Mary is very much a figment of the main characters, the protagonist's imagination, that every woman is a Mary to him and that there is no real Mary. And he just wants to get his future going with, and it's all, it's all imagined. So I don't know how that jibes with what everyone else has said. So much to unpack there. And in, in good ways, first off, I am trying to open a, the, first off, you are not the first person that said that this is an imagination. In fact, mm -hmm. one of my favorite Warren Zanes, who, by the way, if you want a wonderful nonfiction book to read, he just put out a book is about Bruce in Nebraska and uh, about why Bruce chose to release Nebraska in between the river and born in the USA. A and it reads like a mystery novel because you're reaching this it delivery me from nowhere, the making of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. So he says that, no, this conversation never happened. He said, just like I in high school, asked Mary Ellen on a thousand dates while I never even spoke to her, he believes that could be Thunder Road, which I think is beautiful. So about three years ago, Amy, I had a wonderful Bex was on the podcast and their, her and her husband do, oh no, not again. And it's all that because they were so tired of 
listening and watching the entertainment that their three-year-old wanted to watch. They mm -hmm. decided to start a podcast where they would take college-level critique on Finding Nemo <laughs> and having fun with it. And it, it was just a wonderful podcast. She said, and I'm going to read a little bit notes. The scream door slants Mary dress ways like a vision. Painting her as a vision, like a specter, this might be a fantasy or memory of her. Not even convinced any of this is really happening. He says, don't run back inside, darling. You know what I'm here for. Sounds like a threat. She froze mm -hmm. down. And so basically her answer was, no, if she gets in the car, he's going to kill her. <laughs> I, she says, are you upset? I go, no. In fact, now I want you to come and do, critique every Bruce Springsteen song with that thought. So you are not the first person that has said that this almost, she treated it like it was almost a, a film noir song. Yes. Yes. I did read some dark and sinister things into it that may not be there that one could make the case that it's a young man's rape fantasy, but it is just a fantasy. It's all in his head. It's not really happening. There really is no Mary. But that Mary is also the symbol of his longing because Springsteen is so much about starting somewhere else. And of course, cars figure so prominently in his music because it, it's the instrument that gets you to the second act. And, yeah. and so Mary could be like the imagined companion who's waiting for him out there as part of a new life and so i could i can see all that i could see all that i thank you so much for doing the homework and thank you so much for your answer and thank you for joining me i thank appreciate you, Jesse. it it's been yeah. such a pleasure i am so glad and i you're welcome anytime we'll find an excuse to visit please go to the website check out her books let her know that you heard of her on set lusting bruce for now listeners please be kind to each other Please be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, Perfectly Good Podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking.
hard rock music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.